So it's great to have you here. Um, what uh, For Dr. Block, one of the things that uh, you, you'll catch pretty quickly is just his infectious personality. Uh, he wins you over. When you talk with him, you feel like you've known him and he's known you all of, of, your, of your life. And that's, a, I think, a real gift. And it's actually, in some ways, rare, I think, in, in the academy. So um, I, I think that has something to do with what God has done in your life and how you've responded to him. But I'd be really interested to know, and I think uh, we'd all be interested to know, how did you come to faith in Christ, and, and what was that process? You want the long version or the short version? However you like to tell it. In, in, in our Ph.D. program, uh, I used to teach the orientation to Ph.D. studies, and we have them read all kinds of books on how to do research and how to write and what to write. And there's a, there's a chapter in one uh, of these books at that point uh, that I had the students read. It's all about everybody needs to write. You all, we all need to write our story for our children, if for no other reason. And this isn't a Christian book, is it? Uh, and, and so... There will be a long version somewhere along the line about this. Um, I grew up in a very godly home. My father was a Mennonite brethren minister. And in that context, they were all bivocational. So he was a farmer besides. His heart wasn't in the farm. It was in the, the metaphorical sheep. And so he was not a good farmer. I am. <laughs> he was a good man as a farmer. But my uncle, right next door, was the best farmer in the community, and ours was a, an embarrassment. <laughs> I, I'm number nine of 15 children, so only the oldest farmed. And so, a picture of it. But there's a very godly home. He was a man of the word, immigrant from Russia, had all of great, equivalent of grade eight education. But I am living his dream. Of all the kids, I am living his dream. This is what he would like to have done. We would get up in the morning and he would be at the books. We'd go to bed at night and he'd be at the books. That's what he did. He loved his books and studying scripture all the time. He was a great preacher. And my mother was a wonderful woman of prayer, very godly parents. But uh, I, I shared a brief version of this with the guys we were at the dinner last night. Mm, I resisted the call of grace for five or six years because we had in our church, small country church, in the fall we always had a missions conference, and in the winter we had Bibelwoche, Bible week. Uh, I'll never forget, I must have been about six years old perhaps, I can still see a bunch of us guys standing in a row while the person who was going to take the missionary away after the, at the end of the conference, uh, we were standing there. But for some odd reason, this career missionary to India, a single woman, she came over to me and said, one day the Lord is going to use you. You don't want to say that to a six-year-old. And I absolutely resisted the call of God to salvation because I knew before I was born again 
this was in the works in some form. And so that, and I didn't actually become a, a believer until I was about 12, reading a story about a gal who was about to meet Jesus the next day, and in preparation to meet Jesus, she said, I'm going to bring him a present. So she went and picked a bunch of flowers, and she put them in a bag. You say sack. Uh, put them in a bag, and when she gets to the uh, the portals, Peter asks, what have you got? She says, I've got uh, flowers for Jesus. No, I've got a gift for Jesus. And he says, can I have a look? And he looked into the bag and you know what flowers are like 24 hours later. It's smelly yuck. And then the point was made. This is our gifts in our own strength, you know, trying to impress God. And what we need is his forgiveness, his grace, and whatever. And, and that was the moment of, of uh, my submission. So, hmm, it's yesterday, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. That's fantastic to hear, and thank you for sharing that. Uh, you've spent a lifetime now serving the Lord. Uh, you've, you're, you preach, you teach, you minister, and you serve the Lord in the academy, and you have faithfully done this for years upon years. And I was asking you uh, on the way over, and I, I'm, I am curious to know, in your years of service to the Lord in the academy, one of the things that you've seen is you've been able to, you, I, I guess you have a good sense of the landscape of what's going on in evangelical scholarship today. And there's a, a lot of folks here who, who uh, are, are going to come up in that world, who are coming up now. And I'm just curious to know, what do you think the future of evangelical scholarship is for those of us who are going to be serving in the next 20 and 30 years? Well, I'm not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet, if by prophet you mean a predictor. Uh, prophets do other things, but in that sense, perhaps. Boy, it's really tough. Um, the issues that we're facing these days, I mean, we've got an issue on our campus right now. When I get back on Thursday, I have to speak to a gathering of people on how I read Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And some of you are probably aware of the issue on our campus. Um, I think this is... At issue here is what drives our reading of Scripture? Is it influences extraneous to Scripture or issues internal to? And by extraneous, we can ask the ancient Near Eastern world. And of course, I, I was trained in that with Alan Millard, as you know. So I, I, I do a lot of A&E stuff, and I refuse to read the Bible gnostically, you know, as if this came out of ether. It, it, it arises out of a world, and it speaks to a world. But on the other hand, we can become so infatuated with that other world that it trumps the reading of Scripture. That, that's a concern for me. The other concern, of course, is not the ancient world, it is the modern world, the relationship of the discoveries of science with our readings of Scripture. I think this is going to be a critical thing. On the one hand, we ought not fear science. We ought to push the scientists to be good scientists, godly scientists, whatever else. The first year I was at Wheaton, we had Sir John Houghton on our campus uh, to give a lecture. And some of you know the climatologist or whatever else fabulous 
godly man. He gave an address on big science, big God. Some of us are paranoid of what science is doing. I don't think we should be. The bigger the world, the bigger the God behind the world. That's my view. But I think we tend to confuse the data that the research is producing with our interpretation of the data. I don't think we should stifle anybody gathering data. And of course now I'm at a Christian liberal arts institution where we produce people of the highest order in all of these fields and I think we need to encourage them. But I think what we've got to encourage is modesty in interpretation. This is for biblical scholars too, and I keep telling my students, everything I write is in soft lead pencil. And if I have to change my mind, even if it's in print, that's no affront to me. I have to be ready to change my mind if I come to the conclusion that my reading of Scripture was wrong, or that the community of faith, I mean, this is why we write, so that these don't remain private heresies. You know, so that other people can come by and hold our hand and guide us to a clearer truth. But we can become so infatuated with what we're doing. No, 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 no. Everything is in pencil. And, and the older I get, the softer the lead in that pencil. And, you know, when I was where you are, I was very threatened if anybody would prove me wrong. It doesn't matter anymore. There's so much more important. The search for truth is more important than the defense of truth. Because our defense of truth may in fact be the defense of something that's less than truth. So we, we keep pushing that. So I'm not afraid of scientists. I mean, all the DNA stuff. I don't know what to do with all the DNA stuff. I mean, and the links. I've read a lot of that stuff. All I know is that all it takes is one more discovery, and all the books in the library have to be rewritten. You know, so, so I hold their conclusions lightly, and I hold their interpretations even more lightly. And I do the same with Scripture. I don't hold the Scripture lightly, but I hold my understanding of Scripture very lightly. It's very fallible. So. Well, thank you for that. Uh, and just uh, building on that, uh, one of the things that uh, you've exemplified, I think, in your career has been a commitment to the Scripture and the authority of Scripture. And uh, so I'm, I'm curious to know, uh, you know, one of the things that you hear nowadays is uh, theological interpretation, and there are certain grids that mm -hmm. people have for what that means. And, uh, you know, even uh, in preaching, there's, yeah. it's a kind of theological, Christocentric preaching and all of this, uh, which, you know, I think we should rejoice in. We, yes. we want to see Christ. Yeah. Uh, but what, how, how do you navigate that relationship between theology and Scripture? And by theology, of course, I mean systematic theology, because especially in the light of your biblical theology uh, of worship that you've just developed, which is fantastic, how did you think about that relationship between Bible and theology and, and uh, how those interrelate? 
I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's, it's no news to most of you that there is tension between biblical scholars and theologians on this issue. When I was at Tyndale House on, on sabbatical leave, I mean, those are mostly biblical scholars over there. A few theologians come through, but mostly biblical scholars, and the conversations often got very heated and also, they tended to be one-sided. So, uh, I, mean, I mean, there is a difference in disposition. Some of it is dispositional. There is a difference in the questions we ask and the answers we host. And to me, I hope my, I hope my interpretation is always theological interpretation of Scripture. But, but the difference here is, to me, the theology is the goal of scripture. I admit that when I start I come with theological predispositions but I can't hold to them very tightly because they can get changed by scripture. Mm. And so that's the tension I always feel. I come at it with my biases of course but I'm, I am Protestant in the sense that sola scriptura my theology must be subject always to scripture rather than the other way around. Uh, I, I know some people try and go for 50-50. I probably err on 60-40 and whatever else. I mean, we have to keep talking to each other. That's why we need each other. We can't all be TIS people. God calls us to do our work, but he doesn't call us to do it in isolation. He calls us to have colleagues mm. on the other disciplines, and together we represent the truth, mm. I think, rightly. That's, that's excellent. Thank you for that. Now, because I, I brought up this uh, biblical theology of worship, uh, we first of all, thank you for this work. This is a, uh, something that needed to be done, I think. And uh, I'm just curious to know, you mentioned this in chapel, but what, what drove you to this, this project, other than the course and Dr. Aiken's, uh, uh, you know, prodding? Uh, you, want to be, you want me to be very specific. I didn't think about it until I got to Southern. And our daughter, who had just graduated from college up in Winnipeg, we were in Minnesota at the time, but what's a sing that's close to Winnipeg, so... She thought about staying north of the border. That would have worked. But when we were moving to Kentucky, then she, what is our daughter going to do? And she said, can I come with you? So she moved down, and we were looking for a church. And when our daughter said, they don't sing any hymns. I mean, I knew that, but I mean, that they don't even have hymn books. And here was a 25-year-old alerting me to not just a 60-year-old person's idiosyncrasies and ageism. Um, it dawned on me that this is not just about music. This is about what worship is. It's about theology. 
and and that's and and in the course of the next four or five years, as I was out preaching in different kinds of churches, there were more and more issues about which I had serious questions. I always felt like asking, what is the biblical or theological warrant for what you're doing? And I found the answers to be more and more bankrupt. Nobody's, ref the people in the worship industry aren't asking those questions. They're asking what works. And, and when you're asking that question, what is it you want to work? And I discovered the answer is a full church. You want to, as a pastor, you want to look good to the district superintendent. Last year we had an average of 150 people. This year it's 250. Must be doing something wrong. Well, I've lived with Ezekiel for a while. And I discover from Ezekiel is chapter 31 that a full house is a sign that everything is wrong. But we can be so seduced by a worldly agenda that I started asking. And then when I proposed to uh, Dr. Aiken, who is dean, um, you think we, could do, we should do a course like this? Well, the school is 150 years old. There never had been a course on a biblical theology of worship. And at that school, it's a very complicated process to get a, try and get a new course approved. But we started working on it, and we gave it one trial run, and there was tolerable response. And so <laughs> it carried on. So. And what was the most surprising thing you found uh, in, in that process of doing that work? Oh, my goodness. There, there's a surprise in every chapter. I mean, you won't catch it that it's a surprise to me, but my roots are Mennonite. So that when I'm dealing with um, the design of sacred space, does it matter? In our world, plain is good. As Mennonites, we do music, it's, it's oozing out of our pores, and we have contributed to the musical world, especially north of the border, out of all proportion to our numbers at Wheaton College and the music faculty, half of them are Mennonites. This is what we do. The aural, we're all musical. My wife's family is all musical. Our family, we're all musical. We all sing, we all, whatever. Um... But the visual, I met my wife in a tiny little Bible school, uh, about 150 students. They built a new administration building, and they, they put into this building a prayer room. I'll never forget the heated debate over whether in that prayer room we should have a picture of the classic picture of Jesus in the garden, praying. That was heated. You know, and so in our churches, we were really daring when in 1953, I can remember that. I can't remember then that it was so daring. In 1953, when they built a new church building, the windows were like this. Gothic? Shape. No color. No stained glass. Nothing like that. That, that borders on idolatry. So that every time I tackled a new topic, I had to submit to the text 
my predispositions, and I came away often kicking and screaming to new conclusions. It happened all over the place, and of course it won't always show you, and when you read it, you won't. But this is why at the front end of the book I gave a little bit of autobiographic stuff so you get... I wasn't born with these views and all of this stuff. It's higher church, if you want to use that language, than I grew up with. But I think that raising the register is driven exegetically and theologically. It's the awe, the that, awe of God. That is the awe, yes. And so I teach a class in, at college church on Sunday mornings. This last Sunday, I think we had 200 people in the class. I was just, we're te doing Deuteronomy. I hate the name Deuteronomy. <laughs> it got the history of interpretation off on such a wrong track. And we've not been able to shake it. This is the gospel according to Moses. I mean, call it what the first four books of the New Testament are. In any case, we had 200 people. Somebody asked me, why do you wear a tie when I teach? In summertime, I don't always. And I, I have two reasons. One, and, and, and I'm not legislating anything here. But I'm at the point, having worked my way through this as a spokesperson for God, everything I do must provoke reverence and awe. That's my calling. On the other hand, I mean, my students know this, that in my syllabus, I always have in very fine print, wearing a baseball cap to class, is not a legitimate equivalent to the Jewish skullcap. <laughs> this is a sacred task in which we are engaged, and I think we need to approach everything. I mean, all of life is worship. All of life. And if I am teaching... So I, when I teach a class, I do it out of respect for the people. When you people on Monday morning go to work, I mean, this is a middle class, up, lots of upper middle class people in, 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 in this one. When they go to work, they dress appropriate to it. This is a sacred task. And so out of respect for them, I want, to sh I want them to know I'm tipping my hat to you. And I think that is appropriate. But we don't do that. I mean, it's my life. I can do my thing. and That's idolatry. But we can say that dressing like this is idolatry too. Yeah. So I will not define it. I mean, I don't say ties, what you need. I mean, who designed this crazy thing? The Dutch prince at one public event took a scissors and cut it. Cut her off like this. It makes no sense. <laughs> It doesn't, unless you want to choke somebody. But the other side of it, given contemporary definitions of propriety, we're always better to err and a register just a little higher than a register that's too low mm. if we want to commend the gospel to people. Mm. So, but I'm an old fogey by now. I One of the things that you uh, draw out in your 
in your book is, and it picks up on what you just said, that worship, all of life is worship. But you have an entire section on family and worship. Now, I think that's, uh, you know, there's a lot of folks in here, I think, that are very interested in that topic. And, you know, how can we foster families that worship? Is there anybody here who was in the class the first time I taught it at Southern? Was that the first time we were in that side room? Um, uh, the first time I, th I taught the class, there was no section on family worship in the course. Did we do? No, that must have been it then. And so students came to me afterwards and says, you really should have had spent a week on family worship. Well, yes, we should have. That was a great oversight. So the next time around, we put something in on family worship. So I scoured the scriptures for how families do worship. It's a very short chapter. There's not much to talk about it. We have Jacob when he's about to go back to Bethel and he has to tell his family, get rid of all your idols. I guess that's worship. You know, part of the problem is it, it's our view of Scripture. Mm. Namely, we assume the Scriptures were written for private reading and beyond that written for family reading. And so we have dichotomized life into, I mean, we're, we're such legalists, aren't we? In my book, I, I think the opening chapter, I, I mentioned that when I was growing up, we had a big table the size of a ping pong table our dining room table. We, in fact, we played tennis, table tennis on it. We'd push it as, away from the wall, and that's where we played. We, we did all the time. But in, in the morning, we started out with my father reading from the big German Bible. That was the language of the church. Uh, uh, I'm, not, I'm Dutch, we're, but the language of the church was German. Reading, and then we'd all stand to pray, and then we'd sing a song, and we took turns suggesting a song. This was family worship then. And at night, we had it in, in our bedrooms. We had, uh, life isn't fair. We are 13 survivors. Two died in infancy, so I'm one of 13 living. But the one was a girl and 12 boys. So 12 boys shared two bedrooms. My, my sister had her own room. Life is not fair. <laughs> and she kept saying life is not fair. But in any case, in the evening, we'd read 13 verses of Scripture, and then we'd get on our knees to pray, always oldest to youngest, always. These were, these were the rituals. And they were legalistically followed. Well, I shouldn't say legalistically, but anyhow, <laughs> legally followed. Um, where do we get that from? I've read Psalm 1 over and over and over again. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly and sit in the seat of sinners or stand in the way of scornful. I got it wrong. But, but his delight is in the Torah of the Lord and in the Torah he meditates day and night. He's not talking about reading scripture privately. Unless, and this is the important unless, 
that psalm was written to the king, which I actually think it is, based on Deuteronomy 17. The only person in Scripture who is told to read the Scriptures for himself is the king. Joshua in his role, this Torah shall not depart, but you shall meditate on it. He is functioning as a virtue. He's never called a melech, but he's functioning as the leader of the people. It's not about Israel being in on his devotions. It's addressed to him. You, the leader, your task is to embody worship before the community. And so you meditate. But I think the meditation on the Torah is not based on having a manuscript in front of you. It's based on having memorized it. And the function of the Levitical priests, I think in the Levitical towns, I've got an essay coming out on this in a Milgram thing. The function of the Levitical towns and the Levitical priests there was to help the people memorize Torah. And when the text says in Deuteronomy 6, um, Hear, O Israel, Lord, these, uh, these words shall um, be... You shall speak of them when you stand and when... It is not you shall speak of them. It's not offering commentary. You shall speak them. And so I think that the scriptures are written for public hearing. You know, so that when I'm working, working on that chapter, looking for places for private de family devotions, so, I mean, all of a sudden puts everything in perspective. And I come to the conclusion again that family worship is not primarily ritual. Family worship is life. And it's how I, as a father, fulfill my role as a father. That's what my kids need to see. They don't need to see me reading the Bible. They need to see me living the Bible. And so there's a section on how men do this, how wives do and mothers do this, how young people do this, and how old guys like me now do it. You know, so they don't need to see me reading the Bible. They may, but that's not the virtue. They need to see me living it. And that's what drove that chapter. Catches a lot of people by surprise. Caught me by surprise. But if you don't talk about family devotions in Scripture, you've got very little to talk about. No, it's family devotion, not family devotions. It's a difference. Well, I'm mindful of the fact that some of you may have classes to go to, uh, so feel free uh, to, to, to go to the class. Uh, we won't think any less of you or anything like that, so please do feel free to go. But I think uh, we have a couple of minutes, about five minutes, to uh, open it up the floor for Q&A with Dr. Block. So uh, Justin Orr has uh, a roving mic. So if you would, please, uh, if you have a question, state your name and uh, kind of where you're from, uh, and then direct your question, Dr. Block. Brief question, please. Hi there. My name is Charlie. Um, I'm from Selma, North Carolina, which is about an hour south of here. And um, I wanted to ask you a question about, I suppose, liturgical design and denominationalism. Um, one of the results of, I suppose, the contemporary worship is not only that it's changed music, but in a lot of ways it's changed our liturgical structure. Um, and on the positive side, some people have noticed that denominations have become kind of melded in what their Sunday morning worship looks like. So 
um, contemporary churches of different denominations may look the same if they use a contemporary music format. Um, some people have said that this may be a good thing because it kind of shows our unity across denominations in our Sunday morning worship, whereas others are concerned about the lack of denominational distinctives that show and express what our theology is as specific denominations. And I was wondering if you could comment on that as to whether you thought that was a good thing or a bad thing as far as whether having different denominations Sunday morning liturgy look very similar. That's a great question. I started in another millennium teaching in an undergraduate school, and a non-denominational school, and after 10 years I was so tired of this school having to go around convincing the people that they needed us, you know, in their fundraising and whatever. It's quite unhealthy. Uh, ecclesiologically, and I don't think it's biblical. I think it's, it's got to be the other way around. The church produces the school. I think that's the call to ministry should go that way. I don't think it should be a private call. A healthy church will be tapping the people whom are, who are gifted for ministry on the shoulder. And we ought to be embarrassed when our kids come home from college and say, the Lord has called me into service. We should be asking, how come we didn't see that? And chances are it's because our eyes are closed. But you, you know, this is a part of that problem. So when we went down to Bethel, that was, the great attraction was Bethel, Minnesota. This was a denominational school, Baptist General Conference, Swedish Baptists. That was wonderful because they had it right again. I grew up in the Mennonite Brethren world where it was a very tight world. We knew each other. We were all on the same page with our foreign mission project, with our institutions, whatever. There's something fabulous about that and ecclesiologically healthy. And it's not just that we are all worshiping exactly with the same liturgy. It is that we're involved in the same agenda. So when we went to Bethel, that was a great thing. Unfortunately, three years into Bethel, the central denominational headquarters said, from now on, you pay your own bills. No more money was coming from headquarters. Changed everything. Changed everything. You know, and so when Southern called, one of the attractions was, this is a denominational school. And then I was in that world again where this is right. We view ourselves here to be an agency of the people of God. We're not what drives the people of God. They drive us. And so we are serving them. So to me, ecclesiologically, the loss of denominations, the loss of jealousies among, between denominations, that's not a bad thing. But I weep the loss of denominations because what has happened is it's, it's individualism raised to a corporate level so that we don't need the church down the street. In fact, we compete with them, sometimes even within our own denomination. It ain't right. It isn't right. Denominations, I mean, districts, superintendents ought, ought to have churches working together, not pulling against. So just because you've got a denomination doesn't mean everything is right. 
But I do lament. We are now in an independent church, college church. It's a wonderful church. and They do a lot of things right with reference to worship and all the rest of it. But And they've got a great missions program going on. We've got satellite uh, daughter churches. You know, so there's a fellowship of churches here. But we don't have a healthy enough respect that we are brothers and sisters to people in the church down the road or in the next day. We, we're doing our thing. And doing our thing is never healthy. So it's not just about getting everybody singing exactly the same song. So that is helpful. But if you're going to go there, it is equally important for us to sing the same songs that my great-grandparents sang. Because in God's mind, there's no time here. We are all one. And so we need to be identifying with the saints of old and not worshiping modernity and contemporaneity. That's a problem. So... Hey, my name is Kenny Hilliard. I'm a pastor in Marion, North Carolina, and an Old Testament student PhD program. Wonderful. One thing that struck me in your book is how you said that God does not identify between deeds and those who do them. Um, and I was just curious about how that affects how we do ministry, and if you could bring that out more. As a pastor, I'm always dealing with, you know, I feel in my heart these things, but the actions... There's a distinction. And so I'd like to know what you, I'd like to see more about what you think about that. I'm I'm glad you raised that point because there's a common view out there, but that God hates the sin and loves the sinner. And that his disposition toward the individual is somehow or other disconnected from the person. And I ask, where does that come from? And I think it's from pop psychology. Because again, I mean, the scriptures are brutal in breaking down our idols. Do a word study. How many times do you have God as the subject of the verb hate? And then the object is a person. Try that one. And all of a sudden... My pet theories are out the window. I used to think exactly that. Uh, God loves a sinner, but hates the sin. You are what you do. You are what you do. I do believe in justification and imputation of righteousness and what all the... All all the rest of those good old-fashioned things... I, I'm, I'm there, but I will argue that those who have experienced the imputation of Christ's righteousness prove it. And apart from the proof, the reality is a fiction. So I don't know how we got, I, I think it's part of our paranoia ever since Luther over works righteousness. We're so paranoid of that kind of language. But read the whole New Testament with eyes open and don't filter out 
those verses because your theology drives you to filter them out. It's, it's those who do write Jesus' parable. Well done. Well done. Well done. Good and faithful vassal. This is all Deuteronomic language. Enter into the joy of the Lord. It doesn't say, I like you. <laughs> so I, I, I think, I mean, there, there are always two sides to every one. And, but, I, but I think on this one, we have just gone so far off on that that we're scared to talk about godly living as the proof of our faith. No, you're going to go home and say, I'm a total Arminian. <laughs> we have time for one more. Two. Sorry. I default to him. No. Hi, my name is Derek Futrell. I'm a pastor and then, uh, in Martinsville, Virginia, and then also one of the PhD students here. In your book, you make a really distinct difference between the proclamation of God's word, meaning the reading of God's word and not the preaching of God's word, even though you do elevate preaching uh, in, in, in your chapters. So would you mind speaking a little bit to the anemia of the reading, the public reading of God's word today? Oh, why is it that if you want to hear the word of God, you have to go to a liberal church? I, I, I am actually quite exercised about this. We spend our time on our, the time allotted to our foolish comments about Scripture, which as often as not get in the way, I think, when they should be hearing. The, the Scriptures weren't written to be preached. They were written to be heard. They are the sermons. And they were written to be heard whole cloth. Not just piecemeal, like we had at our church last Sunday. He reads one verse in Romans, and then he gives us a, a, a 30, 40 minute unpacking of the verse. That's a, this isn't the book of Proverbs. I mean, Proverbs, maybe you can do that. Take a verse and put it on your mirror. This is my motto for the week. But Romans isn't Proverbs. The book of Romans need to, needs to be heard primarily in one reading. The book of Revelation. Read it out loud. And fall down on your face because it's hit you. I teach a class in Deuteronomy. And uh, after the introduction to the book... This is, we're now, I think, in our fifth year, and we're at chapter 24. We're talking about divorce. Last Sunday, and be a couple of more, chapter 24, difficult task. But in any case, after the in, a couple of sessions of inter, then we started into the text. Well, that first Sunday, I read Deuteronomy 1, 2, 3, 4, all of them. The whole thing. And then I stood back and I asked, what did the Lord say to you? We couldn't shut 
the conversation off. We had to, but somebody else was used, wanted to use the room. They had never heard it before like that. But of course, that forces us then to, to do what, practice what I call expository reading. Our problem is we read so badly. Our problem is because is the text means so little to us. Our, our, our interpretation of the text means a lot to us. But the text doesn't. So that if I am doing a sermon series on Isaiah 53, I've preached Isaiah 53 in one sermon. That's tough. Next time around, I did it in five. But every week, we read the whole chapter. Every week. We tried this at Wheaton College. Uh, I, I have little to do with the undergraduates, but some of the people in charge of the chapel were in charge of, had sat in on my worship class. And so they asked if I would come and help them design a worship service for uh, the first chapel after Easter. Or was, it the or was it the last chapter before Easter? I've forgotten what it was. Maybe the last chapel before Easter. They said, well, they wanted me to preach. I said, why should I preach? Can't we let the scriptures preach? So what we did is we had prayer, the, the liturgy, prayer, and a couple of songs really nicely done. And then we read. And I just started by saying, hear the word of the Lord. And I read John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. My wife was in on that service. <laughs> she knew we were doing something really silly. By the time we were done, you could have heard a pin drop. The awe. But that means we've got to devote some time to how we read. We read so badly. And it is not that not just anybody can read. This is a sacred task. It must be read so that the voice of God is heard. Not the voice of the reader. You know, so... Uh, I lament the loss of scripture in evangelical churches. They're written as whole texts and we need to read them that way. And people no, we need people need to hear them that way. They were written for the community to hear together. So we are united in the word by the word that we've heard. So that yeah but I'm an old fossil. <laughs> Last question. No? All right. Well, why don't we give uh, our thanks to Dr. Block. Thank you very much for coming today. I think it's an appropriate thing to do. I, I feel like we've uh, almost had a little worship service here, so... Thank you for drawing our hearts and our attention to the Lord. Let's bow together in prayer.
Almighty and most merciful Father, we thank you for the grace that we have found in your Son. We thank you that we are united together by your Spirit, and we go forth as your children into this world to proclaim and promote the good news of the gospel of the kingdom, which breaks forth on all of us in our world. And Lord, we wait for the day when you bring your consummation to this world. We we wait for it when we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We thank you, God, for the opportunity to be spurred in our faith, in our worship, to be reminded, God, that we are people of the book. We are people to be uh, shaped and nurtured uh, in your word together as we hear your word proclaimed, read, and through it we worship you. We thank you for Dr. Block. Thank you for his ministry. Thank you for his family. And we ask, God, your blessings upon them. In Christ's name we ask these things. Amen.